person that's in front of me that's not truly who they are but they are kind of possessed right now in a hopefully temporary situation maybe i'm mind playing my game out yeah in order to cope and recognize your inherent and extreme and incredible value i'm pulling from stored hard drive videos from the past to be able to recognize that what i see now does not summarize the totality of who you are Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, and thank you for joining us here on Hope to Recharge. I don't know which episode this is, but this is, I think, my third recording of the day. I'm a little bit drained. And at the same time, I'm very excited about this episode, but I'm super nervous. <laughs> I'm interviewing my husband today. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a background how hard it was to get him to um, actually set aside time for us to do this. He was the most difficult person to commit to saying, okay, what time? When are we doing this? He was very excited about the idea, but he was not so excited to put aside time and we're going to analyze that a different time, why it was so hard for Ari to say, I am ready to um, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. It was always like, when do you have time? I, I'm very busy. I'm very busy. The truth is, Ari is a very busy person. He's very, very, very busy. He's always doing a thousand things. He runs multiple businesses. Um, one of them is a printed giveaway operation. I think he's doing it for 22 years, 23 years. The second one is real estate consulting. The third one is real estate, buying and flipping management. And then he has his hobby, gardening, chicken coop in the backyard, depending on the day, upstate, building, finding auctions to buy properties. There's always something exciting up, up Ari's sleeve. But besides that, he also is a great father and a phenomenal husband and a great son and a great son-in-law and a friend. I don't know. People, people doubt about the friendship part, but um, he's overall tries to do everything really perfect. And I think that's why it was hard for him to commit to a time. So without further ado, welcome, Ari. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> Ari, <laughs> this is actually funny because we do speak a lot as a couple. People that know us um, know that we do communicate a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount. We communicate deep conversations, but it usually does not happen until like late into the night when our kids are sleeping or we have an early morning date every morning after our kids go to school. He comes home from synagogue at about 10 to 9 and we have until um, 9.27 when he leaves to his Bible studies that he has until 10.15. So we have like, it depends on the day but between 20, 15 to 20 to 25 minutes, depending where I am that day to catch up on things. And then we have the deep hours into the night when our kids are sleeping. But during the day, it's always um, work, 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 catching up on life. I want to give um, the audience a little bit of a background on Ari. Um, the audience that doesn't know me and doesn't know Ari, I'm 43 years old. Ari is, I think, 48. I'm not sure, something like that. We're married for 17 years. 
years. We have five children. We live in New York. We travel a tremendous amount together and apart. We lived in numerous different towns. We met when Ari was 31 or 32. I was 25 turning 26. We both had thriving careers. We met in Israel. I grew up in Israel. Ari grew up in Queens, New York. I'm not going to go into how we met because that's for about five different podcasts. But we met and even though he lived in New York, we continued dating for six months back and forth. It was a roller coaster of a dating experience, literally a roller coaster. And it's very similar to the roller coaster life we have as a couple, always ups and downs. We're very opinionated people, <laughs> very passionate people, and we're very strong-minded about what we believe. So it comes into our marriage as well and our children and our views. And as we go along in life, it grows with us. I'm going to go back to when we met. When we met, I was working in Israel in a very big firm, a software company, and I was very busy. I have I had almost everything going for me besides the fact that I was not married. Now, we both grew up Orthodox. <laughs> I was making a face. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I was making a face. But you, you might see this face or not. I'm not sure. I was very busy with my job. I loved my job. I really loved everything about it. Ari was very focused on getting married. He dated over 400 girls. He stopped counting after 400. I think I dated less than 10, maybe 15, maybe. And most of them were one-timers. So when Ari came along um, and we dated for so many months, it was unusual for the Orthodox community that I grew up in, first of all, to get married so late. For both of us, it's usually late. My sisters got married at 19 and 22. My friends were all married. And our relationship was um, based on deep conversations and connections. And I needed to understand everything. I was a very analytic mind. I needed to understand every move he took and why, the before, the during, the after. And I was just a person that loves enjoying life. Just be in the now. Just be okay. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter what's going to happen tomorrow. Now is perfect. So just be perfect. So that was a little bit of a struggle to get to know each other in our own languages. But um, one thing about Ari, he was always a very, very good listening ear. He loved conversation and he loved connecting. And when we got married, we moved to America right away. And we started our life here in New York. And we have five children. I left my career. I left everything in Israel. I knew in order to start my life with my husband, I needed to disconnect from a lot that I had back in Israel. My fame, quote unquote, my friends, my connections, my work, I needed to disconnect. I needed to really focus on the relationship that I'm trying to build with my husband. I was a Ari, would you say I was a happy-go-lucky person? I'm afraid to even hear that. <laughs> He's like, do you want to know the truth? You want the truth? <laughs> well, Jack, let's see. Um, were you happy-go-lucky? No. Oh, okay. I thought I was. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, you were not happy-go-lucky. What was I? You were very focused. You were very driven. Uh, you were very exacting and demanding uh, perfectionist uh, mentality. Things always had to be planned. Things had to be uh, designed in advance. It arranged for different situations. Can't just let things happen as they happen and deal with it then. Very focused and driven control type of uh, focus of making sure things work out according to your plan, your vision, and not to disappoint your, your plan was very important too. Do you think I was a more free-spirited person? Um, I think you had you had different hats that you wore. 
So when you were in business mode or dating mode, you wore a very focused, driven hat. And when you were in relaxation mode, when you would, for instance, go with your best friend on a random four-hour drive to a lot, beautiful resort town in lower part of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, which consists of only hotels and beach and relaxation. So yes, then you'd let the uh, the top of the car down on the convertible and you just drive down for four hours with music blaring and screaming, screaming and singing at the top of your lungs. So yeah, then you were free spirit. But as soon as you got back to the office or back to dating or back to packages or different projects that you had of helping those kids involved in memory, you told me you were involved in helping children that were, um, I think they were developmentally disabled or different challenges of that physically. So that you were very focused on on a free spirit then, I think depending on the hat that you wore. Would you categorize the person you were dating as someone fun? Um, you were <clears throat> very concerned the way I recall things, <laughs> okay. very determined on not marrying the wrong person. That was a major focus of your dating, of not wanting to make a mistake, which probably goes into control. You want to mm-hmm. psychoanalyze if you're a free spirit or not, or what your mindset was. I think that's you were very focused on not making a mistake, not making an error. And there were a lot of subconscious or conscious uh, tests that you were giving out to whoever you'd be dating, myself included to make sure that there were, there were no issues that would cause you to make a mistake. And you had a very thick, uh, fickle methodology, depending on how you felt, was determined how you would proceed. So I don't think you were free spirit. I think when you were in the dating mode, there was different parts of the date that you could break up. There's the beginning, there's the logic, there's the analyzing. But once you felt comfortable that this is going somewhere, and it was the type of date where you were in a positive mindset of appreciating the date and whoever you were dating. In that case, it was me. So you would definitely be free-spirited and happy-go-lucky. But to get to that bridge, to cross that bridge, was, I think, a challenge. And then there was a different points where I may have said something or done something which you did not appreciate. And then it was directed back to the drawing board for you and thinking, oh, no, I may have made a decision that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I dated the wrong guy. I got to get out of this. And it was flee. That was your mentality. But as soon as you were back inside and I roped you back into another date, um, then you would, and you convinced yourself, okay, this could be it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you would put it on the free spirit again. So I think it depends at what time, at what point of your mind, where you were holding, mm-hmm. that you identify and classify your mindset as being free spirit. And it's, I want to tell the audience that we did not pre-talk about anything that we're going to talk about in this podcast, and I have no idea where it's going to go. And um, I just asked him to be kind to me. <laughs> I asked him if there's anything he doesn't want to share. He said it's, he's fine with sharing anything. And I'm going into this episode exactly like I go into anybody else, not knowing what it's going to come up with. And a lot of this stuff that I'm going to discuss about living with someone that suffered from depression and anxiety, we didn't really discuss ever, which is shocking to me because we usually discuss a lot, but it was probably a topic that was very hard for both of us. A, for Ari to go back to that time. Who wants to go back to that time? B, me, why would I want to hear how much he suffered living with me? This is a new conversation that we're having and we'll see where it's going to go. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you and I need to take a deep breath here because I don't know what you're going to say. Did you see any signs of mental illness while you were dating me or first married to me? 
<clears throat> I don't think mental illness is something that I am familiar with and able to diagnose clinically. Mm -hmm. uh, I did see things, as I'm sure you saw things in me, that were peculiar or strange or non-conventional or unconventional in which anybody that's dating somebody else for the point of marriage or to be extremely close with them for their spouse or their partner or whatever the politically term is correct is today, to be able to identify any red flags that might come up that might say, hey, wait a second, this person may not be best suited for me. So were there red flags? Were there things that I thought, oh, these are issues, these are concerns in her mindset, the way she thinks, the way she acts, her concerns, her phobias, her fears? Were there things? There definitely were things. And I think we discussed many of those things and some of the things we may not have discussed. But I think any healthy dating relationship would take each person down the path of identifying factors which they might feel are a risk to them in staying with this person or continuing a relationship with that person or certainly marrying the person. So to answer in a short version, yeah, there were definitely were things that I think that were, you know, things to think about and consider. Uh, you're not normal. And I don't mean that in a negative. <laughs> you're very unique. That's what I mean when I say you're not normal. You're extremely focused and driven on things that you want. You are extremely opinionated and not in a negative way, in a way that you have a focus and a drive of something that you see clear as day and you want to get there. So those are all personality traits, which although I have you know, never taken degrees or courses or certifications to be able to identify them clinically, I think that you definitely have things which make you that much more unique than the average girl in which we have things that I had to think of. Are these are traits and character flaws or, or not character flaws? Are these positive mindsets or negative? Are these going to help me or hurt me if I stay continuing dating this person or marry them? You didn't answer the question. Did you see any signs of mental illness when you dated me? Um, no. Okay. And what I'm aware of now as mental illness in uh, depression, no. Anxiety, you are, were, are, are, were more high strung. <laughs> I said, I definitely was high anxiety then. Definitely. I don't know if that's clinical. I think, right. you know, everybody can be excitable in the right moment or anxious. Mm -hmm. Right. Like turbulence was always something that I was uh, triggered me into severe anxiety or let's say an event that would come up. I would always have high anxiety. And I think as our kids grew older or more kids and more stuff on our plate, I always had anxiety. And I don't think I always had the tools to deal with it or to even know that it was anxiety. Like it wasn't even part of my language. I think anxiety from Matana, the girl that is single was definitely there. It was something that I did right. notice, right. but not something that I feared because I understood your mindset as being right. anxious for a particular reason. It wasn't right. anxiety for no apparent reason without right. a justifiable cause. Right. Well, the cause was justifiable. Right. I didn't it was a problem. And I did see, you know, definitely anxiety, whether that's called mental health, mental illness, I'm not really qualified. Well, that's a very good point because um, once I did go into depression, my anxiety went through the roof and I used to think that I was dying from all kinds of illnesses in the book. If it's an aneurysm, if it's a stroke, if it's a heart attack. Psychosomatic, yeah, not psychosomatic, uh, people that have, um, I forgot the term, the hypochondriacs, people mm -hmm. that automatically diagnose themselves with the worst possible illnesses because they feel that that's the disease or the ailment that they have 
is very common. So it's more of an extremism right. kind of mindset that I would see in you, but I don't call that mental illness. I right. think that's extremism. I have my own extremism. So great marriage. <laughs> okay. So I want to give the listeners a little bit of a background where you came from, where I came from, and how we came together afterwards. Um, Ari grew up with a single dad. His mom left him and his brother. He has one brother. His mom left him when he was nine, disappeared off the face of the earth practically. And he was close to his mom's parents, but it was a distant relationship emotionally, I think. Am I saying it correctly, Ari? Yes, you did a great job. Thank you. And his father took care of Ari and his older brother on his own. And his father tried his best with what he could, but he was limited. He also suffers from mental illness. No one was aware of it. Oh, maybe they were aware of it. Not diagnosed, though. Not diagnosed, right. He's ever been professionally diagnosed right. uh, in a clinical setting. Right. But he definitely has um, extreme anger management, control, phobia, stuff like that. But I think it got worse with after you got older. But when you grew up, he was very loving, kind, supportive to the maximum ability that he could. He was Ari's best friend, I think, growing up. It was, um, it was Ari's sense of security. His father was a sense of security. But nevertheless, he still had, Ari had to grow up on his own. Many times I, w- I would say um, something about, can you do X? He's like, I'm doing it since I'm 11, 12. I could do it now. Like he used to cook for himself, do his laundry, pack for himself, shop. He would come home to empty home, house when he was a little boy, take himself to school. And he had to grow up very fast on his own. He went to Israel when he was 18 or 19 for a few years of biblical studies in yeshiva. And that's where he formed very strong relationships with... Not so loserish when you say biblical studies. What am I supposed to say then? I would say yeshiva is a much broader spectrum than just biblical studies. It's not very, very um, librarian research kind of... But it is kind of librarian research. You were researching the Talmud and, and the Bible. It was it was also an opportunity for tremendous inner growth. Yes, yes. Inner understanding, understanding of who we are. I think the eighteen to twenty year old or twenty one year old age range is for just about everybody a, a time of tremendous growth and self awareness. And I put myself into an environment in Yeshiva in Israel, which allowed me to yes st- uh, study a lot of. Jewish culture and heritage and history, as well as Jewish law and Jewish practice, Jewish customs, a lot of Jewish things, but a tremendous amount of thought. And growth. Religions and many different types of a Jewish practice from affiliated, not affiliated, why the advantages, pros and cons. What do we benefit out of uh, being Jewish in practice, aside from uh, just being Jewish by birth? What are the advantages, pros and cons? How is family important? children, what type of life do I want to lead? Mm-hmm. Who, who do I want to be my role models? So it's not just Jewish biblical studies, but that was like kind of like the, the base mm-hmm. of the, what the yeshiva was about, but it expanded into so much more unofficial therapists that were there, people you could talk to until three, four or five in the morning while either smoking a cigarette or having a beer and relaxing and talking about God and the world, why bad things happen to good people and vice versa and everything and anything. And then going back to, well, let's see what our heritage has to say and opening up the good book and seeing, well, it says this here and says that there. And in, in the 1500s, it was this practice or custom. And there was, it's not just biblical studies. It's okay. really understanding of life 
of morality, of good and evil, in focus, in the nation and the state of Israel, just so many more things than just biblical studies. But in, I guess for, for, a, for a non-affiliated listener, biblical studies kind of is... It's uh, too general. But my point that I was making was that at those, was it four, five, or six years you were in Israel? Those are formative years. How many years? Uh, I was there for about four years in total. Four years. He formed relationship with life mentors that are like parents to him till today. Till today, mentors that guided him through life, through the pain that he went through, so much pain that he went through growing up and finding the Ari that he wanted to be and the Ari that he wanted to be as a father, as a spouse, as a, as a human being and in the community, in the culture just in general. And those years were basically what formed Ari to the Ari that he is. They were very important years for Ari. When he came back to America, he went to college and then he started his business. And that was basically Ari's life compared to my life that I grew up with a very supportive, loving, fun family, extremely family oriented and extremely united. A lot of love, affection, connection, um, strong values. And one of the things that I, I still say till today as a joke, but maybe it's subconsciously not a joke, I always say, Ari married me for my family, not for me. My family is so loving and caring that a lot of people adopt, adopt my parents as parents or as mentors or as life uh, friends. And I felt that my family is very attractive and maybe Ari is just looking for a family. And my family fell in love with Ari. Not in the beginning, actually. It took time to connect to Ari. I think it was only when you say in the, not in the beginning, I think during the dating um, right, right. It was a very stressful, difficult, and challenging time right. because young Matana had not yet made a decision mm -hmm. on Ari, had not right. yet taken the, I think it was the red pill of, is this really what you want to be involved with? And Matana herself wasn't sure if it was the right decision. And I think everybody was feeding off of your energy and your inability to make a concrete decision with certainty that this was not a good idea. So everybody was feeding off of that. And right. therefore, they would mirror those responses and feelings onto Ari as right. maybe not the best guy. But I think once you had come to terms with who I was right. and what we were going to become, and you accepted that and then you let everybody that you that was close to you know that i think your parents mindset and your family's mindset to me changed right uh, drastically at least you know after a couple of weeks of then getting to know ari but then it kind of set in yeah and especially my father my father fell in love with ari until today they have a love affair of a father-in-law and a son-in-law that they sometimes can call each other and talk to each other without even me knowing about it or asking for me. It's just a bond. They're almost two of the same, just with different names. It's interesting, but we're not going to get into that. So why, why I'm giving you this background is that we got married and I, le I left my entire support in Israel. And I basically trusted Inari to be my best friend because I left all my best friends in Israel, be my family, be my love, be my, my support. And we moved to America and we started our life together. We started having children and we had the usual getting to know each other, the traumas from the past that came into the present. We went through a lot of therapy 
a lot over the years for different reasons, for different chapters of our lives. If it was getting used to children, if it was getting used to each other, habits that we had that didn't work well with our marriage, people in our lives that didn't work well in our marriage. How to fight. How to fight. Yeah. Even though we thought we knew how to fight, we did. I think we did know how to fight in a way. I'm, we came a long way. We came a we didn't know the ground rules until we decided that it would be a great idea to take my uncle's advice to seek a professional therapist yeah. to learn how to fight. Right. Yeah. We always got into deep conversations, but sometimes I used to shut down. Ari was always the peacemaker and I used to shut down because that was my way of hiding from pain. I'm much better at it. I would shut down also. Don't take all the credit. <laughs> I tell you <laughs> Yeah, so there was very, it's very hard to hurt Ari and it's very hard to get Ari to be upset. But, but I think through life of him working so hard on overcoming pain and forgiveness, he had that muscle much more than I did. I, that muscle was not practiced by me. I was unaware of that muscle. So I needed to learn it through marriage. So where am I leading with this? So we have three children. At that point. At that point, right. Thank you for clarifying. We had three children at that point. Ari was working. I was not. I decided to leave my career life and be a mommy full-time. I, that was my dream, to be a mommy full-time because career took everything out of me. I gave it my all and I didn't think that I would be able to separate. And I think it was the best decision I made, especially moving to America and, and, and starting everything from fresh. I, I couldn't juggle so much. So... We have three children. We actually lived in Israel for one year. We decided to take a sabbatical. Ari, Ari always pushed me to live in Israel. And I had trauma raising my um, trauma from my youth in the Orthodox world and the schooling system that I didn't want to put my kids through, which I'm not going to get into now. We'll get into a different podcast, but I want to get to the point that we lived in Israel. We came back three kids. I think my youngest at the time was two, two and a half, maybe three. And one day I, I spoke about this on the first podcast of my story. I come home from one of my visits to Israel. We used to travel a tremendous amount of time to Israel. We still do. And I came back and it was a holiday and I go into a full blown panic attack. And there were no signs of any mental illness before or any, any, I didn't even know what a panic attack was. So that night was the first introduction to Ari meeting the Matana that's, that's really suffering with mental illness. And that first panic attack went into many, 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 many more afterwards. And in, in a short time of like three, four months, I ended up in the hospital many times. Why I'm interviewing Ari now is because I wanted to know what motivated him to not give up on me and not say, oh, she's crazy, I can't deal with this, or be so patient with me. He would really be so patient with me with all the juggling of life, of work, um, taking the kids to school because I was not functioning at the time, driving them, picking them up, grocery shopping. I didn't want to leave my room. He would come up in the morning from prayer and he would see me in bed, take the kids to school, come back and say, do you need anything before I go to work? And he would, and a lot of times it would be like three o'clock in the afternoon before I even got out of bed. And he never, ever, ever did he say, just try to get out of it, try to be in a good mood. He never forced me, never forced me to snap out of it. He only gave me support. So my question to you is, how did you do that? How did I 
finish the question. How were you so supportive and patient when your wife was extremely debilitated from functioning and being happy or smiling or doing anything as a mother and just being patient and not not push me to be something that I'm not at that time or make me feel bad and put me down when I wasn't functioning? Okay, that's a, that's a fair question. I think there's a lot of background into mindsets that might be required to understanding my mindset. In general, men have a tendency to be more on the logical side and women to have less of a logical disposition initially and sort of more emotion-based. Uh, both men and women are speckled, pepper, salt and peppered with emotion and logic. Everybody has their own makeup, some men less uh, logical, more emotional. But as a general rule, this is just my own personal ob- observation that men are generally more logic than emotion. And I set myself as well. I put that in the category. And I think that from a logical point of view, when I recognize that there was no immediate threat to life, uh, for instance, the first time that you had your first full-blown panic attack, that it was there, there were EMS people there, the paramedics were there, there was all kinds of blood pressure, heart, chest, everything was being monitored while you were on the floor and they were checking your vitals and, you know, flashlight the eyeballs and, you know, checking, making sure everything was fine. So they did pull me to the side and say, listen, she is completely fine. There's nothing wrong with her. So we are going to strongly suggest that she go to the hospital to check out what's really going on. But there was no cardiac event. There was nothing on a brain. So the logic part of me was saying, okay, everything is fine. There's nothing critical to loss of life, no threat to life. And then the emotion part kicked in and said, okay, so if it's not, you know, danger, and this is what she's going through, so I need to be supportive and understanding. And I think that was kind of my mindset throughout. Anytime you had an episode or anytime you would be in your bed with the curtains drawn in a completely black room till three in the afternoon, is I, my initial assessment was to figure out, is today a day of threat to life or limb? Um, and if it's not, then just kick in, be emotionally supportive and as much as possible because you know, smashing her with a hammer is not going to get her better faster. So it's whatever time it takes for this to pass, I will do the best that I can to step up to the plate to do what I need to do. Because obviously, if I put more pressure on her, it's not going to help. It's likely to hurt and to cause this to drag on for longer. So it's really self, you know, selfish, self-motivated for me to be kind and caring and supportive because to do the opposite, would result in a longer uh, spectrum and a longer period of how long it could go. So it was really self-motivated to, to try to get you healing as fast as possible in the kindest and the best way. I think you're minimizing how hard it was. Because I, I remember... I yes, didn't the challenge. Right. That's the level of difficulty. I'm just saying that's what my mindset was. And I think this is the way my mind works. If I can understand what's going on or understand somebody that did something to me in business or on a personal level or attacked me or insulted me or hurts me intentionally or not intentionally. So I recognized that the hurt and the challenge that you were bringing into the home was by no means intentional. It was in no way something you were able to control. It wasn't a switch that you were turning off or turn, turning on or turning off. And it wasn't something that you were doing that resulted in the consequence of all these symptoms. So there was nothing that I could say, hey, you know, stop eating Kit Kats and you won't have episodes anymore. And then me clamping down and burning all the Kit Kats that are in the house. So there wasn't anything specific you were doing. This was something your mind was doing. There was nothing that I could do. So there's nothing I'm going to accomplish by coming on forcefully. I'm not saying it wasn't difficult. Everything has its challenges. I think that 
in given that you occasionally did have better days and you did have worse days. So the better days were, were there to give me glimmers of hope to be able to say, okay, it pays to invest into my spouse because I believe that she can beat this. And as spontaneously as it came, maybe it could as spontaneously leave. So that, that was kind of my mindset to be able to tolerate the challenges. But also we had a full family. It wasn't really appropriate for me to say, okay, I'm going to move to Alaska. And I'm a <laughs> fat 84-inch uh, television set, get fat cable TV, and there was no Netflix then. No, I think there was Netflix then. And just leave. That, that wasn't really an option. Mm. As much as I do like the Alaska and the big screen TV idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that a lot of people escape to it because the pain is so strong or they could physically break down or emotionally just not be able to handle living with someone that's in such darkness. And so I'll, I'll tell you something that my, my esteemed mentor, Rabbi Orlick, had, had said over in one of his uh, lectures that he gave to us. This was from my time in Israel. Preparation is something that is fundamental in order to surviving and coping with difficulties and challenges ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, that application is critical when somebody's in a challenging situation. So for instance, if, and this is the example he uses, if um, David comes home from work one day and he's at his front door, he's about to unlock the door and he stops and pauses for a moment and says, the house is a wreck and a pigsty. Kids are gonna be screaming. My wife or spouse will have been working the entire day and be at her, his or her wit's end and everything that I think should be in the right place is not going to be in the right place. There's not going to be a shred of any food to eat. There's no supper going to be made. Everything is going to be in disarray. Stop for a moment, take a deep breath, and then walk in the house. When all of those or some of those eventualities are real or realistic, it's easier to deal with them. If he's standing at the front door thinking all those things are reversed, dinner's made, everybody's dressed perfectly and cleanly, the children are seated quietly around the table, the spouse comes over, hey, honey, sweetie, pumpkin, how was your date today? Tell me all about your day. I want to hear everything about your day. That is not reality. And then when he opens the door, he hates the reality. He's not going to be able to deal with it because I think that's what a, a definition of anger is the reaction that we have when things don't go our way. Whenever I would come home or I would leave in the morning and then come back to the house and check up on you before I would leave, just before I opened that door, I took a moment and said, okay, she's going to be under the covers, lights are going to be drawn, she's going to be non-communicative, she can't talk, she might even be a little bit angry at something I, she thinks I did uh, and maybe spiteful or vengeful or hateful or arrogant or obnoxious and just throw heat, all of these horrible character traits onto you so that when I walk in the door and you're in fact having a lousy day, it doesn't hurt because I kind of prepared myself for that in advance. I think that's a very useful tool to survive any situation and be prepared as preparation is the key to being able to get through a difficult situation. Do you I mean, still do you still use that when before you walk in the door? <laughs> Why you do? Every single time. Really? Oh my god, how bad am I? <laughs> it's not a, this is not Reflection of you. This is a reflection of. Let's say. Well, we'll give you an example, Matana. Let's say you are out shopping. You're out getting stuff for the kids, or you're out taking the kids to get clothes uh, fitted, or or whatever it is that you're doing. You're not home, and I know that you're not home. And I'm walking the door. I think that our teenage son is, I, in my mind, is downstairs playing Fortnite. 
Mm-hmm. This time, if I walk in, I see he's actually playing Fortnite downstairs, uh, a, a, com- a computer PS4 electronic game, which is highly addictive and does not produce any valuable uh, skills or personality traits. Total waste of time. But it does, it's, it does serve as a function of being an outlet for a limited amount of time. So I don't get upset with him. And I think that's, you know, him, him being in the house alone is another uh, mindset that I have that I don't imagine in a fantasy that he's going to be sitting at the dining room table, books open and studying for his next exam or, or, or doing, you know, learning a new language or doing something more productive with his time. So I think it's a mindset that I apply to any time I walk in the house. It's not only, you know, when it applies to you, that you're evil and horrible. Any you, expectation. Yeah, you might have had a really crappy day that day. And it's wrong of me to walk in and expect perfect civil conversation when you already might be at your wit's end from taking care of a year and a half year old who screams constantly. So right. it's not that you're evil. It's just that's the reality of, the, of a household, of a healthy, functioning, living household. So you're saying that they taught you this tool of preparation for things that don't go as you expected. And what did you do when I would say to you in the beginning, I want to go to a top heart surgeon to make sure that I'm not having heart failure and I want to go to another brain scan and I want to do um, lung testing. And for I think a month, first of all, I told you fly my mother in first expense. Second one was, let's go to all these private doctors. I wanted to go to top of the line doctors. You had to take off a tremendous amount of work at the time. So we spent a few weeks going to all these top doctors. And then I said to you, I want to go to Israel to heal for two or three months. And you said, okay, whatever you want, whatever it takes to heal. How did you have that courage to just say whatever it takes to heal and not just think about the bills that will be coming in and is it responsible or not? Like what was going through your mind at that time? Um, I remember it slightly differently. Oh, so, um, so I want to hear how you remember it. Okay. Um, I, I think if I recall correctly, finances then were very tight. Things were very tough financially. I think that um, regardless of what the finances were, uh, I kind of, I, I, in the back of my mind, when, you know, I, I, I consider myself or us lucky, despite having been afflicted with this anxiety, panic, and depression that you had been hit with out of left field, there kind of was a runner up to it by the fact that you were generally a hypochondriac and always concerned about your health. Mm-hmm. I, I think that from the, from the very early beginning, of me needing you, there were symptoms, and we mentioned this earlier, of things that you had said that alluded that it wasn't a Band-Aid that was going to be necessary because you likely had some kind of, uh, instead of being a a mosquito bite, it could have been a snake bite or a tick embedded itself in your skin. Um, Or you'd wake up in the morning with an itch and you say, that's it, I have lice. You know, I'll shave off all my hair or the kid's hair. I remember you said that for one of the kids. You want to shave off (laughs) the skin. but they had lice. Yes. Um, so I, I'm, I'm familiar. You have like a pattern and a, and a track record, a history of having the reaction that is a little bit more extreme than many people might have. And that concern that you had kind of put me into the ability to understand when you were saying you think you're heart is going to literally come out of your throat and come out through your nostrils. And then you're going to die of suffocation because your heart valves are going to be blocking your nasal passages. So you won't be able to breathe. I wasn't that traumatic. Your lungs are collapsing. I remember that was another one. And I'm not saying this negatively. No, I understand. 
the mindset was you really felt your lungs were literally collapsing right. as a trauma and you right. needed to go to the emergency room. Right. So while I understand that that's what you were feeling, I also put it in the correct mindset of that's not actually what's happening. And we were both uh, validated that that was in fact the way the mind works. When we spoke to professionals, mental health professionals who diagnosed you, and they clearly said, this is the way the mind works. She's going to be acting, reacting as if there is a full grown adult lion on the Serengeti standing two feet in front of her. That same palpitations at heart, racing and adrenaline rush as if she literally sees that lion, even though it's not there. So when you were to tell me all these things, I recognized in its proper place what it was. To answer your question, this affliction can only be healed from what the research we had both done was by calming the mind, uh, keeping some kind of healthy pattern of lifestyle, of familiar people, familiar places, calmness. If that was the only thing that was going to be accomplishing the, the goal was going to put you in a better place of your, your parents coming in, going to Israel to be around friends and family who were your support team, your mental support team, because you did not have a mental support team in America, because I was the only person that was your mental support team. So mm -hmm. if you need to go back, go back to your locker, to the school locker or the college locker, and have that powwow with your family again or your friends, or being a wild free spirit and running down to a lot in a convertible music blasting at 4 a.m. in the morning. And that would give you calmness and, and you know, get you back to base, back, get you back to ground. And that's the only option. It's not, it's not a choice. So you're saying it was not even an, a choice. It was like, okay, this is what she needs to heal. I don't hear what you hear. You said I, you remember it differently. I don't, well, no, this I'm is saying, exactly I what I was saying. I remember the, my reaction was not as forthcoming as you're making it to be. I didn't say, oh, sure, just fly your mother in. Sure, fly in, uh, fly in um, um, uh, Celine Dion and, and have her sink you. <laughs> sure, fly in uh, anybody you can think of and we'll just spend every yeah. amount of money. Okay. Let's sell everything more. Okay. Fear. I do not remember it like that. So how within, do you remember? Within limitation. Listen, back then a ticket was $900 round trip for your mother to come in. So $900, the professional psychiatrist was four hundred and fifty five fifty for a session right so if your mother could accomplish <laughs> one week what it would take two sessions that's a value proposition right. your mother. that's another point i want to say we went to a local psychiatrist and right away you said to me we're going to the top of the line you didn't say let's find somebody under our insurance. You uh, you were the opposite. You said it's not about the money. I remember you saying this. I don't want to even. I don't want to hear. I'm taking to the top. And you said to me, call your aunt and find out. I want somebody midtown that all the richy riches go to, and I want you to get. I want you to get diagnosed by the top of the line. No, you said I. You're not a guinea pig. No experiment. Addiction in pinching pennies, but when it comes to certain things that are top priority that can mm -hmm. never be done, mm -hmm. it's best to have medical care for severe health issues, mm -hmm. heart, liver, lungs, brain, teeth. The best. If if you have a scratch or you need your finger cast because it's broken. So you go to a doctor. Most doctors are capable of handling it. You're not going to find a doctor who will set your cast of your pinky right, wall. Right. Consequences are not catastrophic. When it comes to mental health or cardiac issues or any kind of blood, you know, real serious mental health, right. you go to the best of the best because why play around? It's like, it's like brain surgery. 
Right. Exactly. It's, it's worse than brain surgery. It's more, right. more challenging and more critical than brain surgery. Right. And um, I think that support gave me so much. Thinking back at that time, I was not even thinking. I was just surviving. I was li- literally trying to keep every day from sometimes killing myself. Um, I was I was suicidal not because I wanted to kill myself. I was had thoughts of ending my misery and I didn't trust myself that I won't do something to hurt myself to end the misery. I never wanted to die. I remember my first panic attack, I was screaming and I said, Ari, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Help me, help me. I'm dying. I, I, I see it happening. It's, it's right now. So I knew that I wanted to live in a long, happy life, but the misery got so bad that I wanted to end the misery, if that makes sense. And I didn't trust myself, my mental illness and being on medication sometimes messes up your brain even more. And I wasn't sure what the side effects were and how I'm going to react to that. So I appreciate so much that you gave me the the feeling that it was top priority. And it was, oh, it's just your brain. It's just mental illness. Just find the local doctor. And thank you. My pleasure. It was, <laughs> it was selfish motivation. It wasn't so altruistic as me. <laughs> okay. If you're not well, then you don't make good food. And I like good food. So get better quickly. So okay. See the way that goes? Okay. So the other day, I have to I have to talk quickly because we have to end very like in 15 minutes. And I have so much that I want to cover. The other day, I asked you a question. And it was, what is your language of love? Because I was doing some report about something. And I said, Ari, what is your language of love? And you went into this long, long, long. And I said, okay, these are the options. I answered you, but you didn't appreciate No, I'll, I'll give you the answer in a second. Yeah, my answer. Okay, Once, I'm going to give the answer. But I said, is it gifts? Is it words of affirmation? Is it actions? Is it service? And I forgot the last one, maybe um, time spending. And you said, laughter, laughter. I'm like, what? Smile. Smile. Smiling. I'm like, I said, so you love everybody that smiles? Every person that smiles to you, you love? Like, that's scary to me. Um, I hope not. scary to you because as a spouse who has jealous concerns, issues, that somebody smiles at her husband. Is his language of love? Is that what you mean by Yeah. Yeah, it's um, scary because it's very easy. It's very easy for you to uh, feel love if it's only a smile. People give out smiles all the time. Oh, wait, I'm not, I'm not done with my question. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. Okay. When I said language, language of, when you say language of love, that doesn't necessarily mean a sexual love. No, I understand. I understand. But I'm taking this to the next. I, that was a little bit of a joke. <laughs> what I'm getting to is your language of love is a smile. When your wife is so depressed, she cannot smile. She can hardly look at you. She can hardly speak. Oh, good question. How did you feel? How did you not feel a severe lack of love and disconnection and a sort of like, where's me? Great question. So I'm going to stand by my decision uh, to have answered the question of my language of love is a smile. Um, and what I did was, um, again, I used Rabbi Orlowick's methodology, never bring into the present something from the past. And when you are in the present and there's something in the present that's bothering you, withdraw and bring the past into. But he said, never do that. So it's contradicting. The never is never negatively bring the past in, always bring the positive. So when my spouse is crying and moping and weeping with the blinds drawn in a black room 
shaking like a leaf, screaming in agony. My mind is playing a video of two years before how she was laughing and joking and smiling and slapping me for saying something highly inappropriate or silly um, <laughs> while walking down the street or on a boat or driving somewhere on a long trip. Mm -hmm. I superimposed the image of you happy smiling over the very sad person in order to recognize that the person that's in front of me, that's not truly who they are, but they are kind of possessed right now in a hopefully temporary situation. Maybe I'm mind playing my game out. Yeah. But in order to cope and recognize your inherent and extreme and incredible value, I'm pulling from stored hard drive videos from the past to be able to recognize that what I see now does not summarize the totality of who you are. But how long could that last? What if I was still depressed nine years if later? I been, if I only have one or two videos in the folder in my hard drive of you smiling, then mm -hmm. it would run out pretty quickly. But thank God I've been blessed to have a tremendous amount of videos, images, and audio in my brain hard drive of very good, happy moments shared with you and witnessing you in a happy place, place them, superimpose them over you. So, but what do you say to a person that needs to get love? The other side, what you mentioned before, it doesn't seem like you had said uh, accurate. When somebody's in a fight mm -hmm. right now, do not bring in previous fights or anger oh. negative to the future, into the present, because that's going to make for a terrible present. And mm -hmm. not only that, you're going to charge the person in front of you with crimes they've never done right now, but we're only in the past. And you're going to reawaken them and make them present, even though it's memories. So that's what he was saying. Bring the, the positive from the past into the present. Never bring the negative from the past into the present. That's interesting. I don't know if I agree with this. I, I, I highly respect Rabbi Orlowick, and I guess it's more con context related, but I feel like we're made out of our past and we're definitely what we are in the present. I agree with you that for you, it's definitely, I agree. <laughs> When you see me, it's very difficult for you to see me with all the positives in the past and not the negatives. But you or taught me, listen, you taught me. It, it was definitely something I n never knew how to do. You definitely taught me. And it took me years and years and years of work and therapy and, and seeing that. It took me time. But I'm, I'm thinking uh, if you were depressed for god forbid god forbid it should never happen god don't test me if you were depressed or anxious or bipolar or schizophrenic i don't know that i would be able to be patient and bring the past ari laughter i remember there was a very short time in your life very short it was a few weeks there was some episode with your father and you went to like a scared place that i didn't recognize ari you were still functioning through life. You went to work. You were still happy with the kids. But when you were vulnerable with me, I saw that scary part of you. And all I could say, God changed this because I cannot, cannot. I think it was the lack of me having you support me. And I'm like, if you are going to be, I know, very, oh, very. It is. But I'm saying, I don't know if I would have the strength to go through the darkness because we're all human. We all want to be loved. We all want it to be seen. And when the person doesn't have to give the love and it can go for me, it went for a year or two. I went on medication. So my ups and downs were a little bit better. And But 
even when I had love, it was more mellow. I was giving mellow love. I wasn't giving real myself who I am fully. So what happens to the other? You could be as nice as you want, as, as positive as you want. And all these theories are very nice. Robert theories is a nice tool. But how do you fill yourself up when you feel like you're not getting anything? To You're feeling, 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 giving, 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 giving. What fills you up? I think the confidence in your decision that this is a valuable person to invest into. Just because somebody may not be their complete self, that doesn't detract and deduct from all the value that they have accomplished in themselves and to their family. I don't think that just because a spouse is having a rough month or six months or year or two or five or 10, that detracts to them. And you, you see clearly uh, what separates the men from the mice. Or In many instances, there are patients that go into a coma and their loved ones make vigils around their bedside for years and their spouse don't give up on them. Many, They're holding on to hope. Many military members have spouses that are waiting for the day that their husband, that's a POW, will come back. They're, they're the, just because they are not them, their complete selves in the present, that does not diminish their value one iota, who they are. And that recognition is a confidence in what you've already shown and proven of who you are. So I'm not, I'm not holding on to false hope. I'm realistic, and this is who Matana really is in who she has expressed previously in her value. So right now, she is not who she, all she is. This, is. this is a fake Matana in front of me. The real Matana is the one that's in my mind's eye, that I'm waiting and hoping and doing everything I can to bring her back to that state of full recovery. I just had a really good question, and I forgot it as you were talking. I forgot the question. Somebody has the flu. You don't say, that's it, I'm divorced, I'm giving up on them, they're sneezing, they're in bed for a week. You recognize this is a temporary situation. And even if they have a catastrophic illness, it's even more in comment on the, on the, love, the loving family to, right. to support. You recognize this is not them. I remember the question. You know, when you take off, we fly very often. We're big jet setters. And it always said, we don't even listen to the movie in front of us about the safety. And they say, if you're with a small child or someone in need of, of support, first put the oxygen mask on you and then help the other one. And I just interviewed a lady today that she grew up with a mother that was bipolar. And she says one of the tips that she gives people that are suffering with somebody that is near and dear to them that has any mental illness, take care of yourself. Um, nurture yourself, make yourself uh, wear, uh, have boundaries. Don't lose yourself because you won't be able to give. What was the taking care of yourself? What was your life oxygen mask? Wow, what a loaded question. So it's a great question and I have the answer as you already formulated the question already the answer. One of the very extremely valuable uh, self-help things that you did to encourage your recovery again, this is the way I remember it, may not be the way you remember it, was you started getting involved in practicing yoga to the point of ritual. Obsession. Religious obsession. You would not miss it. You would practice it. You got the kids into tree poses and downward dog and crocodile froggy. <laughs> that, that, I, I think I tried to get up on the, um, in the living and take my socks and shoes off and stand up. <laughs> Your belly, how how it was balancing out the universe in my world, and at at those moments where you would go out to yoga, I would find that I would now have an hour to watch the Travel Channel or Nature or Discovery Channel or the History Channel and sit there with a big fat juicy unhealthy supper in front of a flat screen TV and mm -hmm. watch 
to my heart's content. When I when you would then return, I, your hand would be on the side of your hip, and you say, "What? You were watching the whole time? This is you wasting time? My God, you couldn't have laundry the kids and this and that." And I would look at you blinking as I heard crickets in the background, trying to my mind racing for some kind of answer why it was justified, and I just didn't have one. Right. So for me, those moments were precious moments of escape where Ari was going to refuel mm. and chill, his relax, his zone, his space mm. of being uh, completely immersed in what Hollywood productions have been able to accomplish. Travel Channel, I'm now in a new place. History Channel, I'm in a new time. Discovery Channel, I'm inventing, creating new things. All the different mind games of delusion, grandeur, and escape that television has allowed so i wish i, I knew that moments i really wish i knew that the truth is it would not have helped for me to explain it, that i think you would have heard me anyway exactly but you may not have accepted it exactly funny that you say that because people ask me very often what to do and how to communicate and i said you have to share with your spouse but looking back i maybe with a therapist it would help if there was a therapist in the room that would say to me listen matana you have to understand what he's doing already Give him his time. Let's make up the, this is his escape. This is his coping mechanism. Matana, Maybe from a third party, I would hear it. Matana, that was my mimi. <laughs> yeah, Ari Ari likes to um, unwinding, not with friends. He likes unwinding. Ari's a big giver, big, 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 big giver. And I remember when we first got married, he used to go to Vegas every single year for a trade show, every single year in January for a trade show. And Ari never wanted me to come along. And I was always shocked. I wanted to spend, very offended, hurt to the court, to the court. And I remember I was so offended. I'm like, why would he not want the lovers of his life, his everything, because that's what I felt about him, to spend every moment of his life sharing fun experiences. And I remember after, I think, two, three years of me being very hurt every January, I, I called my older sister, Gvira, and I said, Gvira, like, please explain this to me. And she said, Matana, I think you don't understand one thing. When givers give unlimitedly, they need time that they don't need to think about anyone but themselves. Because the moment even the love of their life comes with them, they're always prioritizing them. So he needs time to not think about anyone but himself. What a smart sister. She's so smart. Oh, she's brilliant. That's why you love her so much. So do I. So does everybody. The world world loves Gvira and rightfully so. But it really gave me a sense of comfort that it was a good thing. And I think, listen, it was, it still was hard for me when you left, but I think it wasn't anger. It was maybe frustration, wish, desire would be different, but it came from a place of Ari gives, Ari nurtures. I was always thinking about everybody else before he thinks about himself. He knows how to nurture himself. He knows what he likes, but he doesn't, it's not his first go-to. And by the way, now I remember that I was fighting to get rid of the TV, which is so crazy that you were willing to actually give away your oxygen mask. Was I feeling any better by the time that I fought to give away the TV? No, it was was about halfway, three quarters of the way through. And I recognized that whatever escape and recovery I was able to glean out of sitting in front of a TV, it was not becoming recovery and escape because you were putting such a, um, a battle into keeping the television. You felt it was such a waste of time and such a distraction. And as a healthy spouse, you felt it was a distraction from me focusing on you, which is legitimate. And you needed me constantly to be 
concerned about you because you were in a very bad place and you needed my help to recover effect, effect, effectively and mm -hmm. efficiently. Mm -hmm. So the TV for you was a barrier in you healing. Mm -hmm. And once I recognized that, so I realized the TV, as much as I love it, is not going to get her better faster. So I'll kick the can down the road. We'll get rid of the TV now. And maybe in the future, we'll discuss the option of getting a TV back or not. By the way, that's a mechanism Ari does all the time. No absolutes. Maybe for now, but maybe we'll get it back again. There's never an absolute by Ari. Never, ever, ever. And I think that's a coping mechanism with him. For now, maybe. But there's always uh, a way of return or something, a change or never something like that. Never burn the bridge. Right. Travel back on the bridge one day. Don't burn it. Right. But I... I I do remember that I had struggles with the TV as a barrier, but I think when I put up the real fight about giving it, uh, giving up the TV, it was because our kids were getting older and I felt that what they were seeing on TV was, first of all, a waste of time and not what I wanted to feed their mind. And that's when I got Rabbi Erlowick involved to explain to you how unhelpful it is for, um, for us as our family, what we need. And I think I'm happy with the decision. I'm I'm actually very happy with the decision and it was definitely a journey. I wish, I wish going back thinking that there would be a therapist that would help, would be able to communicate that to me, that that was your oxygen mask and for the, for me to be able to accept it. What would be an oxygen mask for me that you deem appropriate? I think, I, I don't know. I, it's always projecting. You think like, what would I do? So I, I'm thinking about myself. Right. Without projecting. Knowing. Without, Ari. without knowing Ari. Knowing Ari. So I would definitely say TV, one. You don't want TV. But I don't want TV. Right. I would so say. Allow me to have. Um, going out with your friends. It was always important for me for you to have your friend time. Like I always said, go with your friends, go to Vegas, go to Atlantic City, go pull, pull, go, go shoot. No, but I was saying like whether your birthday or during the summer, I would say go do. No, but I would say I would, I would say do it more, do it more, get together a little bit more with your friends to do fun activities to just disconnect, okay. I think, or find a spiritual growth within yourself, a practice. If it's basketball, I remember I was very, very into you finding a basketball team that you could join or taking on a sport, or at the time you joined the Hebra Kadisha. It was that time that you said, I wanted to do something spiritual to give back to the community. And you used to go sometimes. For those who don't know, it's a burial society. Um, in Jewish law, uh, when somebody uh, expires, so there is a group of devoted individuals, usually part of the synagogue community, who attend to the, uh, the body and address and address the body and its needs and dress it properly and carefully bathe it, uh, giving tremendous respect to the deceased and preparing it and dressing it for its final journey to uh, to the next world. To so, burial. Yeah, for burial. Yeah, there's a whole procedure that's involved, very meticulous, time-honored tradition. Uh, there's a group of men for the men, women for the women. And I felt that that was a noble and worthwhile cause for me to get involved with. First of all, because it was performing an incredible act of kindness to somebody yeah. who could never pay the kindness. And more importantly, it involves me dealing with the dead, which is a, a brutal, stark reminder in the face that our, our, that our time on this world is mm -hmm. not forever. It is finite and it is therefore incredibly valuable. So it caused me each night to come home thinking, what do I want to accomplish? What do I want to do? Because my time here is very, very short. So it was a great self uh, motivator 
for valuing time. And I think you, it was very therapeutic for you. I remember you thinking as somebody that's afraid of death, that I was fighting it every day. I was thinking, oh my God, how can he go see dead people and, and take care of them and touch them and clean them? And it was very therapeutic for you. You used to come back fulfilled and very full. Um, so I would say like find the community services that you do so often, like your a food pantry thing, I would say like you have more time, do that. But I understand that there needs to be some kind of unwinding. I think I would say to you, like go to meditation, to yoga, to something, not an escape, but more um, building of a muscle. And those are not projections. That's what generally I would want to do. Or not. I, <laughs> no. <laughs> So you're saying you asked me, <laughs> you asked me what I think you should have done, and right, I'm projecting. Knowing me as I am, without projecting what you would want to do, and your suggestion is I go yoga and meditation. Oh, okay. So maybe go. Well, you invested you into the belly, you know, shape of being round and shape is an indication that as much as I love the concept of yoga for myself personally, I'm not there to appreciate it enough to do it. Right. I think you did a lot of gardening at the time. You were very into gardening. You also did the chicken coop, which was very therapeutic for you. Yeah. It was very therapeutic, building the chicken coop, taking care of the chickens. I think it was a year or two. The whole chickens thing. Um, it's funny because as I'm talking to you now, I realized it was your escape of the pain and your time. Obviously, it wasn't enough. I, I believe it I couldn't be. What I did with the chicken coop, I don't know if you want to... Uh, just give them uh, what I did. Uh, so Ari went to Israel one day um, for a business trip. It was Vegas. No, it was Israel. It was 100% Israel because I knew that I needed to wait for a long time till you landed. And so he went to Israel for a few days on a business trip. Um, I get a knock at the door and it's the mailman with a box with holes in it. And I said, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's chicks. I said, What? And he said, yes, chicks. I said, I think you have the wrong address. He said, Ari Jacobs. I'm like, I'm going to kill Ari. I am so going to kill Ari. I bet you he planned the delivery the day he's in Israel on purpose. I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to call Ari? He's on a plane to Israel. It's 12 hours. I didn't even know where this came from. Like, why would he not tell me that he's buying chickens? 12 of them. I run to my neighbor across the street and I'm like, help me. What do I do? Or like, do I feed them? They're like a day old. I think they were like maybe 24 hours old. They send them overnight in a box. And I was freaking out. I was literally freaking out. And I'm like, this is what I need. I need chicks in my house. What am I going to do this with and them? They're dirty and they're smelly. Smelly and yeah. So anyway, so my... OCD people who need to be in control. Right. And I'm very OCD. Um, so my neighbor made a tiny little box with a blue light. He said, we read up online that they need a blue light. Finally, Ari lands. I'm like, Ari, what the heck did you do? He's like, oh, they came. Great. I'll be back in two days. Just they, all they need is for the first few days is blue light, warm, and a little bit of water. Don't worry. They don't need to eat. I think you said they don't need to eat for the first few days, or maybe it came with food. I don't remember. Anyway, long story short, Ari builds a humongous chicken coop outside on his own. In our backyard in, in our, New York City. Yeah. They were not roosters, so it was legal. They were, it was a double deck or a triple deck or a chicken coop. And it was Ari's passion. And he got Nachalil, our oldest son, to help him out with it. And it was their project. And it took the chickens how long to lay eggs? It took about six months till they were mature. To lay eggs. Yeah. Yeah. So they started laying eggs. And then Nachalil started selling his eggs. And then that spiraled into a thing. 
And then I already healed because I remember that I went through a healing process. It was a lot of ups and downs. I was on a quest for healing. I went to tons of healers and therapists and psychiatrists and medication and retreats. And you see the the correlation? I got chicks and you got better. (laughs) Make people better. (laughs) Anyway, and... I got better and I was able to, and I had infertility problem, but then I got pregnant with T. Ferret, with Kate, our fourth child, and I was really better. I was off medication for that year, still doing a lot of healing things that nothing should come back. And then I said, Ari, it's either the baby or the chickens. You decide. (laughs) And right before the baby was born, we sold the chickens. I think we were ready to get rid of them. They were ready. Like my son was not enjoying the project of cleaning the eggs every day, and he was not enjoying finding the buyers and whatever he made. I I explained the math to him of how much he, I think he was charging, I think $2 and 50 cents, a half a dozen or something like something outrageous like that. And we did the math that chicken lays an egg every day. And we have, I think at that point it was 10 chickens. Just about, a, I think, because the one died. died and the, right. um, so we had about 10 chickens. So we're getting about it, but one of the two laid twice a day. We're getting about a dozen a day. Right. So at that rate, um, we could sell the chickens right. and we get $25 a chicken, which equals a certain amount of days. And this way, the, right. so he just, I know something. If I get that kind of cash up front, great. So we, we put them on um, Craigslist and boom, somebody bought all the chickens. Yeah, before I gave birth, it was like really like a few weeks before I gave birth. So maybe that a few- was my outlet. Yes. That was Ari's outlet. And so Ari would find projects, not even knowing. Now going back, if it ever happens again, God forbid it should never happen again, never, ever, 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 ever. First of all, I, I, I think I came a long way. Like buying chickens or getting sick? <laughs> Both. <laughs> even though Ari's planning on building a farm upstate on one of his properties. But as long as it's far, far away from me, that's fine. But I... I the house will be far away from the chicken coop, no question. And... <laughs> Um, one of the things that Ari loves to do is try to make me laugh. When we first got married, he said, you need to do nothing, nothing, nothing to make me happy. Just laugh at my jokes. So in the beginning, I thought it was okay. But then I'm like, they're really not funny. So I'm trying hard now to start laughing at his jokes, even though sometimes they're not so funny. But it's my my token of appreciation. And I agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I want to go back to if it ever happens again that I get sick and you need an outlet, I think I would say to you, why don't you go do into- whatever you want to do as long as it makes you happy? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think I would say to you, knowing you what you love, either gardening or construction, like find a, a place that you, you love building. You love, love, love using your hand and building. Find a place that you can put your heart and soul, disconnect, put your your frustration into the hammer and nail or see something of building of because TV really disconnects you. I'm not saying you can't have it or a movie is great to have every now and then, but do something that gives you long-term excitement and you actually see that you're building something and you love, love construction. So I would say like, go into that, invest into that. Is that a good idea? Do I know you well enough? Great idea. Are you joking or are you? I'm serious. Yeah. It's something that I can receive satisfaction from, something that yeah. you are agreeable with, great. Happy yeah. medium. Ari, I think you are a little bit of a unique situation in the supporting factor. What would you tell people that are not as patient as you and didn't have mentors like you and didn't have a hard upbringing as you that prepared you for crisis because you did have a lot of pain and loss 
sadness in your life that prepared you for struggles? What do you do for people that are not prepared or they don't want to be the caretaker of someone that's suffering with mental illness? So those are very distinct questions, very separate questions. Each one is its own chapter, I, I think. I would, if you're asking me, uh, uh, my opinion is that person needs to prepare before they go into battle. And that applies to any kind of a battle. So if somebody is taken care of or involved in life of a loved one or a friend or a spouse who is dealing with mental illness, it is absolutely critical to prepare in order to be able to tolerate the onslaught of battles and war. And everybody has their own methods, can research in their own ways, the best ways that they can prepare and become knowledgeable in the topic. And I think a fundamental understanding and fundamental belief walking into the question is that you genuinely care about the other person. If you don't genuinely care about the other person, I don't think there's any preparation necessary because you don't really care about them. So why would you be interested in helping? But if a person generally does care about that other individual that's going through these challenges, find out what they're going through to be to cause and build empathy towards that person, understanding what they're going through, and then prepare. Use all the preparation tools. There's a lot of online resources. Volunteer at an institution that has people in worse situations. When I was single, I went with a very good friend to the Alzheimer's unit every weekend for a year or two or three uh, on weekends. We'd actually sleep over there Friday nights and Saturdays, and we would spend our day singing to the Alzheimer's patients uh, the same song. I mean, you know, they don't remember anything in the present, but there was a lot of historical songs. So, you know, Take Me Out to the Bowl Game was a big hit. Um, and it prepared me for people that are not all there that, you know, do life situations and disease and illness, somebody that's in a worse situation than I'm in to build that muscle of empathy and care that it's not coming out of revulsion and the inability to tolerate somebody's situation for the negative. So preparing was a critical one. Um, and the Wait, second- I want to ask you about the preparation before you go into the second. What if they're not, pre- what if they don't have time? No one prepares for mental illness. Like there's no, oh, tomorrow I'm going crazy. Tomorrow I'm, I'm having a panic attack. Tomorrow I'm going no, through depression. Or the person is suffering with a mental illness. The person who has mental illness is at level A, B, C, or D in severity. And the person that loves them and is trying to take care of them may be witnessing level A, B, C, or D. So if the person is witnessing level A, research what levels B, C, educate, or D Educate, educate yourself. Become aware, become aware of what it is how it happens, triggers, things that calm, mm. universally accepted foods or exercise or uh, mm. any, any methodology and everything about the topic, become an expert. If you love the person and they were diagnosed with an illness or uh, with, with a winning lottery ticket, you would educate yourself on what to do with an illness or what to do with a winning, mm. winning lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. Everybody has the ability to research and, and find out about the situation before you act. So if somebody comes home one day and the person is in, in heavily involved in a loved one who's suffering from mental illness, there are, are, there are or hopefully will be other hours during the day or night to educate one's self about what that other person that they love so dearly is going through. So I think what you're saying is the preparation is really education. Correct. Okay. And then preparation is mindset. Now that I'm aware that this is an eventual, probable, and likely decline, that this loved one may encounter, envision and imagine that decline so that when that decline becomes a reality, you've already experienced it and it's not as much of a shock 
I don't know if you can prepare for the unknown because the unknown is so scary. So So education will say that person is in this situation. This is what you can expect. You know, if somebody is in a control situation, abuse situation, and you follow the trends and the statistics, the person might eventually start to hurt themselves in order to regain control or, or reach out to other forms of violent or physical abuse or abuse their own children. These are all classic examples of what has been documented in clinical clinically observed behavior in these individuals. So become familiar with the clinically observed behavior and tendencies of how slippery the slope gets and how deep the rabbit hole goes in order to become familiar with that, that if it ever does escalate, you've already seen it, you've already heard it, you've already understood how bad it can get, that you're not blown away, frozen from fear and inability to act. That's exactly the preparation that EMS, fire, police go through. They prepare themselves and prepare themselves and prepare themselves over and over so that when the time comes, they can actually act and it's not a shock to their system. That's what I mean by prepare. Okay, so, and the second thing that you said? The second thing, the the first thing is to prepare. And the second thing that a person can do is to increase the love that a person has to that other person that will reduce the chore of having to take care of them or show empathy or love to them. Become more aware of why this person is an incredible person. Think about the moments in the past. Think about the experiences. Think about the greatness that this person has, what this person can achieve. And that will motivate you to stay even more in their lives. You know, when the president walks into the emergency room, everybody is going to do everything they can to make sure the president is comfortable because everybody universally recognizes the value of a president or of a figure, uh, a a religious figure or a a, a beloved teacher, anybody that's in a position where you universally looked at or nowadays celebrity. If the person is a nobody and they walk to the emergency room, nobody feels guilt that they are going to be tending rounds to other patients. And in order for you to achieve great levels of devotion towards that person without becoming burnt out, you need to initially artificially remember the benefits about this person that you can become more and more devoted to them. And that will help you to take care of them better and in a truer way that comes because you see and remember how incredible this person is and or could be. Does that make sense? Yeah. What if the person you love doesn't want to recognize? Like, I was very passionate about, I knew that I was sick. I wanted to heal. I was seeking healing more than you were even pushing me to heal. Like I was on steroids to find healing. What if someone's living with somebody that's in denial of what they're going through or they don't want to go through the healing path that's, that's necessary to, to take in order to heal? Can you answer that question in less than 30 seconds? Um, yeah, I think it's, first of all, you cannot lead a, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So therefore it's incumbent on you as a caregiver to somehow creatively get that person to recognize that they do need professional help. If it means you have to be sneaky and tell them you're going out to a baseball game with them um, in order to get to go see a doctor, or you tell them that you're going to both jump off a bridge together, come join me in the car, we're gonna join this, we're gonna join jumping off the bridge together and then take them to the, the emergency room or the professional. You need to be creative in how you get them to drink the water, but it's critical that they see a mental health professional if they are in denial or, uh, or told by other people, intervention, some of the methodology. Mm. But without them being um, self-motivated, it's impossible to get them to change. So it's kind of tricky because it can lead to a lot of disconnection of betrayal. Like you led me to somewhere yeah, that you... Which is better, betrayal or saving the person's life. So right. I would rather 
person feel I betrayed them, but know that I saved their life or know that their life is saved mm -hmm. than not being betrayed and having them dead. What does hope mean to you, Ari? What does hope mean to me? That's a great question. And how many seconds do I have to answer that? I, like minus. <laughs> Negative seconds. Um, <laughs> hope means to me is the present. What if the t present is terrible? Hope is the present because the present is something that is ongoing. It's constant. It's right now and it is ongoing. It keeps on moving. So the hope is for me, right now we have the ability to make choices and those choices are our present. That is what our hope is about. Our choices that we make in our present will allow us to achieve greatness in the future by making our choices in the present. So the present to me represents or is the absolute definition of what hope is. Being not, in the now, even the if the now, now is terrible. Not being in the now, making a choice right now because there is so much hope and potential and mm -hmm. beauty and growth mm -hmm. in the choice that we make in the present. Right. Okay. Okay. Last question. Do you feel that the matana yeah. that I was before and the matana that I was now are two different human beings? And would you, would you say that it was worth going through the struggle to get to where I am now? Or do you wish it was you stuck to the matana before mental illness? So are you asking the Ari that is now or the Ari that was then? Now. Of course now. Because there are two different Aris. No, now. Of course now. So I do believe that there are two different individuals as anybody would be given a traumatic incident. There's always before and after of an individual uh, when there's a trauma involved. And even more so with time and life. Uh, I don't think anybody would say that their spouse who's 20 years old is the same spouse at 60 years old. They're completely different people due to life experiences and moments and choices uh, and events. So I do think that you have incredible value and growth that you've experienced over the many years as a result of the trauma. And I think the flaws and the challenges that were presented and that you went through caused you to become greater. Your so, sensitivity, uh, the matana that is now, has become so much more sensitive and aware of people's challenges. I'm not saying that you were self-centered and egotistical beforehand, but you simply were not aware that there's another whole world out there. Mm -hmm. And that realization made the world much smaller to you. Beforehand, the world, I think, in my opinion, was that matana was a shy, timid little girl whose world generally involved her and her life experiences. And rightfully so, you had not been exposed to the big bad world. And the world for you then was enormous and incomprehensible, uh, kind of like Pluto and the outer realms of our galaxy. But once you experienced the trauma and you recognize that this is not something that's unique to you, but this is out there, and many people have this and share this, there's a, that common bond was awakened within you to recognize that the world is a much smaller place and so many more people are in tune with Matana, and you are in tune with them as all of humanity, all of human, humankind shares the bonds of trauma and triumph and tribulation and growth and failure. We all share these common threads and you became personally aware that those are experiences which everybody goes through. So I think that, that made you a so much greater person, more aware of your world. What about yourself? You spoke about the world. What about yourself as a husband? Do you think that it was better for our marriage that I went through it? Or do you feel like it was always a stain? Is it a stain in our marriage? Never, or? Never, nothing negative at all. I don't have any negative connotations or associations. I look at it as a life-changing experience that resulted in tremendous growth for both myself and for you and our family. 
I think our kids, our, our children, are aware of perceiving and understanding mental health not as something negative, but as, as a flu or as any other illness that somebody has that they need to take the proper medication or the proper mindset or lifestyle choices mm-hmm. to recover, to become a stronger, better self. I think for us and our family, there's no negativity associated with it. There's no negativity in finding a new job or moving to a new community. There's no negativity. Growth opportunity, um, life character building uh, characteristics and traits, only positive. I see nothing negative at all. Oh, I'm happy to hear that because I never asked you that question. So now I can breathe. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ari, for giving us a little bit, a glimpse. I feel like I could really speak to you. I'll probably speak to you tonight about it a little bit more. I wish we can share that little bit more with the audience. Maybe we'll we'll do it in the future. Just I got to go now. And I really appreciate your insight. And part of me is a little bit sad that I didn't know what you went through. And I never had the the knowledge that I needed to see that you might also be suffering. I don't think I had the proper gratitude then. I know that afterwards I, I expressed it many, 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 many times, but it's probably never enough. The gratitude for you being patient with me and caring with pleasure about, and delight. And love and affection. And love and affection. Yeah. Ari, if somebody wants to reach out to you, can they? He'll never answer. <laughs> Unless it's by email. Reach out to me for, for what purpose? For, for, for supporting somebody that's going through mental health. Uh, so, um, I, guess, I guess they could. I, I'm not always as attentive to responses as I should be. Life is very busy, but they certainly can reach out to me on Facebook. And my name on Facebook is Ari L. He does not look at Facebook ever. <laughs> so no, if you... <laughs> That's so not nice. You don't look at Facebook. Well, I can't be overwhelmed. Okay, so Ari doesn't look at his phone or texts during the day. He only responds to email and phone calls during the day, like his desk phone. I actually think the best thing to communicate is Facebook because I do check it periodically. It's not that I never check it. I do check it periodically, but this way I'm not overwhelmed. And I can't really have it crossing over into work email. Right. It's not a good setting. Okay. Work email. Okay. So if they could reach out to me on Facebook, that would be for me. That would be the best. Okay. But if somebody would like to get a hold of me and have Martin has a better suggestion, you certainly can get in touch with her and then she'll let me. <laughs> One of the things that his friends say about him, that he's very loving and caring, but when he's in the moment doing something, you would think that he doesn't even know them. He's very focused on what he's doing. So he doesn't like, he doesn't like when people bothering him, bother him through the day of work. And I had to... If somebody has... Distract. It's a pleasure to help them, but it needs to be in the right time. Right. So I, I was very focused. When I will be able to check Facebook, that will certainly be a time okay. that I'll be able to... Or you can yeah. reach out to us on the Facebook group. I am on Facebook, Ariel Jacobs, oh. R-I-E-L-J-A-C-O-V-S. Um, so that, that is where to reach me and you'll see the guy with the goatee. I think yeah. that's the, the guy with the goatee, or you can reach us on the Facebook group, hope to recharge community on Facebook. And you can, um, send a private message if you don't want to go public, cause this is still a lot of shame in this topic. And a lot of people are reaching out through private messaging. So you could do that and I can refer you to Ari and hopefully one day he'll get back to you. Hopefully sooner than he promised my sister five years ago that he'll get back to her for calling to say congratulations on T. Ferret's birth, <laughs> that she's still waiting for Ari's phone call back. <laughs> 
There's nothing wrong with that. Meanwhile, <laughs> we've seen each other many hundreds of times since then. Yes, yes, yes. I just had to, I had to leave this conversation was a little bit deep on a, a little bit of a joking way. So thank you very much, Ari. Thank you for joining us and hopefully, and thank you for making time for me because it was something that was hard for me to get from you. For somebody that really does hardly says no for anything, it was a hard um, quest to get you to set aside time. So it thank wasn't, you. It wasn't hard. It was just the timing. Challenging. Uh, yeah, timing was was difficult yeah. to to, to disconnect from phones. And yeah, and I'm, I'm extremely proud that uh, of you that you have set your mind to such a lofty goal to helping this many people, and certainly even prouder that. You not only had the goal, you actually actualized the goal and made it happen and, and helped the amount of people as you do. So it's really a, a pleasure to be able to contribute some small way, to be able to be uh, you know, honored by being an interviewed subject and candidate on the podcast. So I did want to thank you and recognize you know, what you've accomplished is really something as a badge of honor for me as well. And uh, I apologize that it took this amount of time to get it nailed down, but I'm glad we did it. Yeah. You can find us on hopetorecharge.com or Hope to Recharge Community on Facebook. Thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.